Well, good morning, everyone. I'll ask you to find a seat, find a Bible. You should have one in the seat in front of you if you don't have one with you. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 5, looking at verses uh, 17 through 20 today. So picking up where Jason left off last week, and you're probably wondering, okay, this isn't Jason, what's going on here? Um, most of you, I think, by now know who I am. I'm the missionary. I'm, uh, my name's Jonah. I am here on home assignment uh, this year with my family. Uh, we've been in Lyon, France for about 11 years. This is our home church, our sending church, and so we're back here with you guys this year. We're raising funds to return to the field, so hopefully uh, by this summer, July or August, we'll be moving back to France, relocating in, in Paris, where we'll continue our, our ministry there. Um, so we're going to be, like I said, we're going to be uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm picking up where Pastor Jason left off last week. So we're looking at this idea of God's law, the law, the kingdom of heaven, that kind of thing. Now, when we think um, just generally about law, not just biblical law, but law, I think most of us probably have a bit of a love-hate relationship with the law. We generally try to avoid breaking the law, right? For the most part, we, we try to avoid that. We like to know that the law is there to protect us from lawbreakers. Uh, we know that laws are necessary um, as long as they don't become stifling to our, our personal freedoms, right? But we like to know they're there. We generally think that a lot of the laws apply to other people maybe a little bit more than they apply to, to us, especially when it comes to maybe traffic laws, right? Speeding and running stop signs and that kind of thing. But when it comes to God's law in the Bible, these same attitudes oftentimes apply, right? We generally think we're pretty good people, and we are as long as we don't look too closely at God's Word, because we might read something there that we, we don't like, something that maybe calls us out on a particular sin in our lives. Now, some of us absolutely love the law. We love it. We love it so much that we become preoccupied with it and with whether or not the people around us are keeping it according to our standards, right? And those people are oftentimes called legalists, people that have an unhealthy kind of obsession with the law. On the other hand, there are people among us uh, today who absolutely hate the law, Right? We think we love Jesus, but we don't love his opinions about our attitudes and actions. We don't really want to know what he thinks about how we're behaving, what we're thinking, that sort of thing. We like to talk about grace and mercy and compassion and love, and we like to pretend that maybe the, the law is, is obsolete. We don't need the moral stuff anymore. And those people are called antinomians. Okay, that's a big uh, theology word, but it simply means, for, from the Greek, anti meaning against, and nomos meaning law, those who kind of push back a little bit against the law. And we usually find ourselves in one of these two camps, or maybe even both, depending on the day. I think we all have these, these kinds of tendencies. So I think uh, Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, will likely offer us a very helpful corrective. Keep in mind that as Jesus began his ministry, he was saying some things that people had not heard before. His exposition of the Hebrew scriptures, the law, and the prophets sounded a little different from what people had been hearing their whole lives from the scribes and Pharisees. And so when you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you hear the people saying things like, well, we're amazed because Jesus is, is teaching as one who has authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees, the teachers of the law. 
So Jesus was stirring things up, shaking things up a little bit, and he wanted to make sure that people understood where he stood on matters related to the Torah and the prophetic writings. And so to assuage those concerns, he tells us, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So that's what we're going to look at um, today. So Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And Stephen earlier today um, had asked me, would I read this passage in French? So we're going to do it in two languages. I'll read it in French. I'll read it to you in English as well. Um, French is kind of my ministry language. I've preached a lot in French, spoken a lot in French. You can tell my Bible, my French Bible's a bit worn here. But I, I'd like to read it to you in French this morning, and then we'll go to English. And the exciting thing about this, I think that the, the thing to remember is that you don't have to know Greek or Hebrew to read God's Word. Um, the exciting thing is all over the world this morning, um, Christians are gathering, reading God's Word in their languages. So we'll start with the French, and then we'll... We'll, uh, we'll go to the English. Matthieu, chapitre 5, verset 17 à 20. Ne pensez pas que je sois venu abolir la loi ou les prophètes. Je suis venu non pour abolir, mais pour accomplir. En vérité, je vous le dis, jusqu'à ce que le ciel et la terre passent, pas un seul iota, pas un seul trait de lettre de la loi ne passera jusqu'à ce que tout soit arrivé. Celui donc qui violera l'un de ses plus petits commandements et qui enseignera aux hommes à faire de même sera appelé le plus petit dans le royaume des cieux. Mais celui qui les mettra en pratique et qui les enseignera, celui-là sera appelé grand dans le royaume des cieux. Car je vous le dis, si votre justice n'est pas supérieure à celle des scribes et des pharisiens, vous n'entrerez point dans le royaume des cieux. C'est la parole de Dieu. I will read it now in English so you understand what's, uh, what's going on here. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through, through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray for us before we go any further. Lord God, we thank you for your word, this word that has been revealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And just as we, we sang this morning, Lord, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we would know you that we would understand this word. I pray, Lord, that this would draw us closer to you in faith and knowledge. And I pray that we would put these things into practice for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Sermon on the Mount contains uh, Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of heaven and God's expectations for those living as subjects in the kingdom. Okay, Pastor Jason has been talking about this over the last couple of weeks. We're, we're, we're on that same theme. And in this passage, there are several things that I think Jesus really wants us to understand about the law, about his relationship with the law. 
Jesus wants us to understand the object of the law, first of all. And ultimately, when we read that he's not come to, to abolish but to fulfill, the idea is that the law points to Christ. The law points to Jesus. The next thing we want to see here is the relevance of the law. The law is still relevant today. Keep in mind what Jesus says in the following verses. I have, uh, you, you don't even want to take away just even a dot, even just the, the, the cross of a T, the dot of an I, any of these little parts of the law. It's all relevant. Keep it there. That's the idea. And then the purpose of the law. And we'll look at how the law relates then to us today, how it points us toward Christ. When we fail to recognize the good news of the law, I think we ultimately fail to recognize who Jesus is. And so Jesus is going to help us kind of correct some of these, these ideas um, today. So the first thing Jesus does is show us that the object of the law and the prophets is Christ. The object of the law is not the law. The object of the law is God. So keep in mind that when Jesus is referring to the law and the prophets, he's referring to the Torah. Torah was a Hebrew word simply meaning law. The Torah was the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is the the law of Moses, the writings of Moses. So that's the law, that's the Torah. The prophets pretty much refers to everything else. Now sometimes Jews would refer to the writings and the prophets, that kind of thing, but here prophets simply just means everything that's not the Torah, everything that's not Moses, we're including that as well. So when Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, what he's saying is, I have not come to abolish your Bible. Okay, your Bible is still, read your Bible, it's, it's still good. Okay, we wanna look at the Bible. I'm here to help you understand that I am the object of the Bible. I'm what the Bible is all about. Your Old Testament points to me. That's the idea. So if you love the law simply for the sake of law, you've missed the point of the law, and you're a legalist. On the contrary, if you despise the law because you think that grace overturns the law somehow, then you've missed the point of the law, and you're an antinomian. If you love the Bible without letting it point you to God, you're an idolater. If you think you love God without hungering and thirsting for his word, you're a fool. That's the idea. So to cure us of this unhealthy relationship with the law, the, the, the idea is not more law or less law. The idea is Jesus Christ, right? The object of the law. Now, on August 7th, 1974, a French tightrope artist, Philippe Petit, walked a tightrope strung between the twin towers of the former World Trade Center in, in New York City. It took him a long time to prepare for this. Uh, years of preparation, he strung a wire between these two towers, illegally, of course. I don't think they let people do this kind of thing normally. But he planned this, this whole thing, and he spent about 45 minutes walking back and forth on this wire, 1,300 feet above the ground. Absolutely incredible. Terrifying. I would never want to do a thing like this, but he did this for 45 minutes, and, and, and the way he did it, the reason he was able to stay on this wire is because he was able to focus himself on where he was going, right? You can't go out on a wire 1,300 feet above the ground and start leaning and looking off to the right or looking off to the left or that kind of thing. It doesn't work that way. You have to stay focused on where you're going. Now, when we walk the narrow path of faith, we have to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Any distraction to the right or to the left, toward the law, against the law, and you're gonna fall, right? That's the idea. Those who walk the narrow path are not those who've rejected the law, 
They're those who know God through faith in Jesus Christ who's written the law on their hearts. That's Jeremiah 31, 33, Romans 2, 15. Likewise, those who walk the narrow path are not those who are obsessed with keeping the law with legalistic zeal and righteousness, thinking that their own righteousness is gonna save them. Those who walk the narrow path love Christ and express that love through obedience. So if you lean too far to one side, lean too far to the other, lean too much toward the law, lean too much against it, and you take your eyes off of Christ, the object of the law, you fall to your death spiritually. That's, that's the problem. So when Jesus insists that not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law and the prophets until everything has been accomplished, he's reminding us not to be distracted from the true object of the law. Now, when my children were babies, um, they would sometimes receive a gift for their, for, you know, for their birthday, for Christmas, that kind of thing, for special occasions. And every time, every time, systematically, categorically, globally, like all babies everywhere from the beginning of time, they would open their gift, throw it aside, and spend the next 20 minutes playing with the wrapping paper, right? I think you've all seen this. You've had babies, you've been a baby, you've been around babies. That, that's what babies do, right? They play with the wrapping paper. Babies don't care about how much money you spent on them, right? They don't care about the sacrifices you've made for them. They don't care about any of that stuff. They care about one thing and one thing only, shiny, crinkly wrapping paper. That's how babies work, and I've seen this with all four of my children. Now, I suspect that we here are a lot like babies, right? We get so wrapped up in the law, loving it, hating it, misunderstanding it, misapplying it, whatever we do with it, we get so wrapped up in it that we fail to recognize the object of the law, Jesus Christ. So all of God's law is relevant for us today, all of it. And I'll explain what I mean by that, because that may seem a little strange. How does all of this weird Old Testament Levitical law apply today? And I would say all of it is relevant today. And if you fail to see that, I think you're really failing to, to grasp this beautiful picture of the gospel. We may not need to practice the purity laws of the Old Testament, the ritual cleansings and all of these kinds of things since God has purified our hearts in Christ. Yet these laws tell us something about God's holiness, something about his desire for his people to be set apart from the world. They still apply. We may not need to practice the civil laws of ancient Israel because God's people are no longer a nation in the sense that they were at that time, bound geographically with a king, with law and order and judges and that kind of thing over them. God's people are spread throughout the world. We don't practice the civil laws of Israel. Yet these laws tell us something about God's love for justice and for order in his kingdom. Right? We may not need to practice animal sacrifice any longer since Christ is the ultimate sacrifice once for all, but the sacrificial system reminds us that sin is costly and that someone must pay the debt. Right? So if you're not reading your, your Old Testament and savoring these ancient words, I think you've missed a beautiful picture of the gospel. Jesus is telling us that if you really want to know who I am, Look again at the law. Take a closer look. Go back to Leviticus and Deuteronomy and these, these other places. 
Now imagine, if you will, imagine that you are the high priest of Israel, okay? You've been consecrated, anointed, set apart as the one who will perform the sacrifices for the people, okay? It's a very special role. And today is the Day of Atonement, let's say, the holiest day of the year, the 10th day of the seventh month, Yom Kippur, the day when the, the sacrifice will be made for atoning for the sins of the people, so you get up in the morning, you start making your way up to, toward the Temple Mount, winding your way through the streets of Jerusalem until you come to the court, the court of the priests, where you see the bronze laver. This is where you wash your hands and your feet. It's a ceremonial cleansing that must take place to prepare you to even enter into the temple. So you go through this ritual cleansing, you enter into the first part of the temple. Here your fellow priests are waiting for you, Knowing the importance of the day, they, they don't even dare speak. They know how solemn, how important this day is. So silently, they help you dress in the sacred garments of the priest according to the law set down by God in Leviticus 16. A linen robe, a linen tunic, white linen, a sash around your waist, and a linen turban on your head. Once the garments are in place, once you've gone through the ritual cleansing, you're now ready to sacrifice a young bull for your sins and the sins of your family. Okay, you're not even at the point where you're sacrificing for Israel yet. You have to go through this whole process just to purify yourself so that you can be accepted by God to make the sacrifice for the rest of Israel. Now, once you've sacrificed the bull, two goats are brought brought to you. And these are spotless goats, the perfect goats, the best goats of the flock, right? Hand-selected, these are the, the, the best best of the flock. And now you cast lots. You're going to cast lots to decide which goat will be used for which purpose. Let's say the, the lot falls to the goat on the left. Okay, this goat will be the goat of expiation, the scapegoat, on whom you will lay your hands to symbolically represent the passing of the sins of Israel onto the goat. And then as you do this, you watch as the priest then lead this goat away, out into the wilderness, outside the camp, representing God removing the sin from the people. Then you turn to the other goat. This one is the goat of propitiation. Okay, this is the goat that will bear the wrath of God, his judgment against sin. This goat you, you, you hold against your bodies, you pull a knife from your sash, and you slash its throat. Blood is now pouring all over your white garments, adding to the blood already there from the bull that you've sacrificed. You smell the stench of death. Uh, you see the blood, the gore. And you realize at that mo moment how God reacts to our sin. It's a disgusting thing. So you collect the blood into a, a bowl of some kind. And now this is the moment, this is the moment you fear. This is where things get serious. You look down and notice one of the other priests is tying a rope around your ankle. Because the idea is, if you go into the Holy of Holies and do something wrong, God's glory will strike you dead, right? His holiness will strike you down. So they want a way to pull your body out from behind the curtain, right? So things are serious at this point. Um, there's no turning back, really. This could be the greatest moment of your life, or it could be the moment you die, right? Uh, and, and you know this is possible because you've seen it happen before. There are stories, right? You go back and look and read through the Old Testament. There, there, there were occasions where people were killed because they didn't get it right. So as you enter, 
Behind the veil into the holy holies, you see this dense cloud of smoke emanating from the incense in the golden lampstands, which protects your eyes from God's terrible beauty as he descends into the cloud. You breathe a sigh of relief that you have seen a shadow of God's glory, and yet you are still alive. You can feel your heart beating in your chest, and as you tremble in the presence of God, you sprinkle blood seven times on the mercy seat of God's Ark of the Covenant. You have made the atoning sacrifice. You've done it, right? You've made provision for Israel's sin. You have worshiped God in a way that few others will ever have the privilege of experiencing. And every bit of this ritual points you to a Messiah that you have never met. This experience in the presence of the creator God of the universe points you to a Messiah whose advent may still be hundreds of years away. The Day of Atonement and every other aspect of the law is there to direct your heart to something greater, to the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. Okay, this is Leviticus 16, by the way, and I'd encourage you to go read it. It's a powerful image of God's grace and his wrath towards sin. So the sacrificial system should aim our worship at Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice. Right? The purity laws uh, should point us to Jesus who purifies our hearts of sin. The ritual law of the priest should redirect us to Jesus, our high priest. The moral law should point us to Jesus, the perfect man. If you think the law is, is, is not relevant today, you're missing out on something truly precious. Yeah, the Sermon on the Mount invites us to savor the entire counsel of God's word this is why Jesus says whoever even relaxes the slightest of these laws will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until the totality of God's redemptive plan has been fulfilled. That's what Jesus is telling us. So now we come to the purpose of the law, which is to show our inability to keep the law so that we are compelled to recognize our limits and to turn to God in faith. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, the very best theologians and pastors of the day, unless your righteousness surpasses that of these men, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Pharisees were as close to perfect as you could be. Their entire life was dedicated to the fastidious execution of the entirety of the law. These guys were so devoted to the application of the law that they followed all 613 Old Testament laws with meticulous attention. They even added laws to the law just to make sure that they got the original laws right. Okay, they were dedicated to legalistic righteousness. We read about them in Matthew 23, their robes were clean, their phylacteries were broad, their tassels were long. They tithed faithfully, not just from their wallets, they tithed from their spice racks. I mean, they, they tithed cinnamon and all this stuff. I mean, they, they were dedicated to keeping God's law with perfection. Matthew 23 tells us what the Pharisees deserve for their legalistic righteousness. And this is where we read where Jesus pronounces what we sometimes call the sevenfold dominical anathema, seven woes against the Pharisees because they failed to, go, to recognize that God is the ultimate savior. That was their problem. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
You brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs, blind guides, children of hell. This is Jesus talking here, condemning the Pharisees. Their sin was thinking that they could do it themselves, ignoring God, focusing on their own righteousness. Now, do you remember the story of the wealthy young man, or rich young ruler, it's sometimes called? You you can find the story in, in Luke chapter 18, or Matthew 19, and in the story, we have something very similar going on to what the Pharisees were doing. You have this, this wealthy young man, he comes to Jesus, and he says, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? To which Jesus responds, well, have you kept the law? Have you loved God? Have you loved your neighbor? Have you done all the stuff that's prescribed in the Old Testament law? And the young man says, well, of course I have. I've kept all the, all the laws. I've, I've done this perfectly my whole life. I've never sinned, uh, done anything wrong. So then Jesus confronts him and says, well, there's one thing that remains then. Get rid of the idols in your life, your wealth, which is keeping you from me, and come follow me. And what happens? The young man goes away sad, right? Because he possessed great wealth. He was not willing to get rid of that idol in his life. He was not willing to take up his cross and follow Jesus Christ. And the response of the disciples is really interesting in this passage because they say, after observing all of this, who then can be saved? If this young man who seems to demonstrate all of the, the blessing of God. I mean, he's, he's wealthy, God is with him, God loves him, he's clearly been taken care of by God, he's kept the law perfectly. If he can't be saved, who could possibly be saved? And what does Jesus say? Well, with God, all things are possible. You see, the, the wealthy young man was asking the wrong question. Do you, do you see the problem with what he said? What must I do to be saved? that's not the right question. And Jesus corrects that. He says the real question is, the question you want to ask is, what must God do for you to be saved? You see, sometimes it's not about our competence or our ability, our gifting, what we do for the church, our ministry, our successes in life. It's not about those things. It's not about trying harder. It's not about working more for the kingdom. It's not about doing more for God. Sometimes it's about recognizing who we are in context to God, resituating ourselves in light of God and his holiness, recognizing that we can't do it on our own. A few years ago, our family was on our way back from a conference. Every, every couple of years, we have a, a mission conference for all of our missionaries and pastors, church workers in Europe with our organization. And so we had been over in Slovenia, which is just on the other side of, of Italy from France. And as we made our way back, we'd crossed northern Italy. We had just gone through this, one of these huge tunnels that passes underneath the Alps, about 20 kilometers long. We'd pass under this tunnel and just come out on the other side. We're still about two hours from home, and our car started chugging. It started having some problems, and it eventually just died on the side of the road. And so I'm realizing, okay, we're still a couple hours from home. It's getting late. This is not really how I envisioned our, our trip going, I don't want to be here right now. And I had to ask myself a few questions, because I figured out pretty quick, this is a problem with the fuel injection. Fuel injectors, there's something wrong here. And I had to ask myself a few questions. Okay, do I have the competency to fix this? Now, maybe given some time, I could, I could come up with something. But that wasn't really the only question I had to ask, because I also had to ask myself, okay, do I have the tools? Do I have the tools necessary to solve this problem? I've got a few wrenches in the trunk, but that's not going to get me where I need to go. And then finally, do I have the right parts, the replacement parts I need? That's going to take a little time. 
those have to be ordered, I have to get them here, it's gonna take way too much time. Now, in the end, none of that mattered. None of it mattered because I did have in my wallet a small business-sized card with a phone number on it, right, roadside assistance. I called the number within 30 minutes. I had a tow truck there. They'd taken our car to the garage to get fixed. A taxi came, picked us up, drove us back to Lyon. Problem solved. It didn't cost me a dime. That was pretty good. It didn't matter about my competencies. It didn't matter about my resources. What mattered is my dependence in that particular situation. And in the same way, I think Jesus wants us to understand that it's not about your competency when it comes to your spiritual life. It's not about your competency. It's not about your moral perfection. It's not about your striving. It's not about your legalistic righteousness. If you're not completely dependent on Jesus Christ for your salvation, for your value as a human being, for the success of your ministry, if you're not completely dependent on Jesus Christ, you've missed the point of the gospel. And you're a Pharisee. It's not about trying harder, and it's not about doing more. It's about walking with Jesus Christ in faith. That's what Jesus is telling us here. Matthew 5, 17 through 20 is about Jesus acknowledging the beauty of the law and restoring the law to its true intent. He's undoing the perversions of the law by the scribes and Pharisees. The law is not just a list of rules. The law is a description of the kind of person who walks in faithful relationship to God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the law. Let me pray for us as we, as we end. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of Scripture, for these words of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who came into this world not to abolish, but to fulfill. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ himself was the sacrificial lamb, that he was our high priest, that he went to the cross on our behalf and gave his life. We thank you, Lord, that he was resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father where he reigns today over his kingdom. We thank you, Lord, that we are part of that kingdom. We love you, Lord, and we ask, Lord, that we would put these things into practice for your glory. Amen. Now, we want to go to a a time of communion. And so let me read for you what the Apostle Paul tells us about communion in 1 Corinthians 11. He gives us just a little reminder of what communion is, why we participate in communion. So 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now let me just explain that what Paul is saying here is is that when you take communion, you are saying yes to Jesus Christ. You are affirming your belief, not just in your own heart, but 
to those around you. Intellectually, on the level of our mind, communion allows us to affirm the truth of the cross of Jesus Christ. Emotionally, the level of the heart, communion allows us to express our love for Christ. Ontologically, that is, on the level of our being, communion allows us to receive the grace of spiritual nourishment. Relationally, communion allows us to encourage our fellow believers in their faith as we take uh, the, the, the bread and the cup together. And spiritually, communion edifies and fortifies us in our faith. So I would invite you um, to, to participate, to take it. This is a way of encouraging uh, each other in the Lord, um, of renewing our, our yes to Jesus, as I mentioned. So those who are uh, helping with the communion, come on up. Um, we have the communion tables here. I'm going to pray for us, and then I want to invite you to come and participate and express that love and faith in Jesus Christ. So let, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for this opportunity to remember the cross, to remember what you accomplished for us. When we take the bread and we take uh, the cup, when we take the wine, we're reminded, Lord, of your activity in time, space, history that you went to the cross on our behalf. I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged and edified through this time of communion. In Jesus' name, amen.